the optimal life. Caesar, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I can't complain. You know, it's it's a beautiful day. Every day is a beautiful day for you, right? Absolutely. Every day to be alive is beautiful. When you go through something horrific like you did back in 2018, which we'll get to, how do you look at life now on a daily basis? Is uh, Do the small things matter much less? Mm, I'd say I appreciate the little things a lot more, um, you know, just because I was so close to not being able to do the trivial things, you know, like walking, like being able to actually smell the flowers, you know, I know as cliche as it sounds, you know, when you're so close to not being able or losing that ability to do so, you take time to really appreciate the little things a lot more. Yes. So you're saying that you appreciate the little things. Let me rephrase. Do the minor annoyances in life become much meaningless? Sitting, getting stuck in traffic, stubbing your toe, having somebody say something mean. Do those things become less relevant? Yeah, I, I mean, on the flip side of that, um, when the little things that we take for granted on a daily basis become more important, obviously the little things, the trivial things that would normally frustrate me or before normally frustrated me or annoyed me, um, they're irrelevant now in my life. Like, I, I just, I'm grateful and I take time to really appreciate the little things that most of us take for granted. So I don't have time to really dive into the negativity of the little things anymore mm, yeah it's amazing how sometimes uh it takes a horrific experience to really shift the way that we think act feel behave uh, before the accident talk a little bit about what your life was like what you were doing where you were going how things were were, were happening for you yeah before my accident in 2018 um everything was moving forward like it was a I only had an upwards tra trajectory uh, my career was taking off both professionally um as as an actor as an artist but then also my professional career um, as a designer as a multimedia specialist uh so I, I really had nothing to complain had everything to look forward to the following year um in my book in my memoir I, I talk about to that 2018 like the end of 20. 17, I grabbed my family clothes and I told them, hey, you know, all we sacrificed coming to the U.S., all you guys have done to for my sisters and I, like, it's about to pay off. This is going to be my year. Uh, there's so many things happening. There's so many things, projects that I was a part of. So I was nothing but excited. And 2018 was a year with many promises, but unfortunately left them unfulfilled for me. What were some of those things? That, well, first off, where did your parents immigrate from? We came from El Salvador. Uh, we were born in Santana, El Salvador. Uh, and my family's made up of five, you know, my parents and my two older sisters. I'm the baby of the family and the only boy. Uh, so we came in 1996 and been here ever since, you know, this, this country adopted us and forever, forever. How great. old were you when you came here? I was three. I was three. You were yeah. three. Interesting. Okay. So in, in, nine, in 1996, you came here in 2018 was the accident so 22 years later so you were 25 mid-20s yeah i was about to turn 25 uh but i turned 25 the day i got discharged from the hospital mm. so things were looking good you were doing some acting you said you were multimedia you were even acting with like clint eastwood or something along those lines correct 
Yeah, so I had started opposite of Daniel Radcliffe in Beast of Burden. Um, you know, I was the bad guy. Uh, it was it was fun working with him, and I was working in Blind Trust opposite of big Mexican star Eugenio Cia, um, who's still my my really good friend. And then uh, I worked there with Clint Eastwood. He well, he directed the movie Fifteen Seventeen to Paris, and I was Spencer's friend. So again, I was nothing but happy uh, what I was doing. Uh, I loved what I did and had everything looking forward to uh, 2018. So you were in Los Angeles this whole time? No, I was actually in Atlanta. I started started my acting and then in Savannah, thankfully, one of the casting directors there, he he was promoting local talent. That's how I got my my break. And from then on, it was just uh, finding an agent. And then it was just upwards from there. That's right, because your girlfriend that you the girl you were dating was what going to school at what Southern Georgia, Georgia Southern, I believe. Yeah, Georgia, Georgia Southern. How long were you guys together for at that point in late 2017? Uh, we had been almost a year, I believe. Almost about a year. A year. Yeah. Were you in love with her? I, I would say so. Yeah, and after the accident, that that was the only thing that exponentially grew for me. You know. Because I had a severe brain injury, the obviously the impact I received just impaired my emotions and my personality in a way. Uh, but it's hard to explain to somebody how a brain injury works if they haven't gone through it. And for me, it was like a scratch disc. Like I knew I was going down to see her that day, so that was the only memory that kept replaying. And so for me, she was the most important thing in my life mm-hmm. from then on. Did you see a like a future with her as this this woman was potentially going to be your wife? Absolutely. Um, at least that's that's what I I hoped and that's what I I, I wanted. Um, and we were we were all from the same place, you know. Like her parents had been born in El Salvador, which is something that um, me and my parents we never really hung out with many Salvadorians. We, there wasn't that many around us, and so finding someone that shared the same culture and just basically that I felt could fit in with my family. It was, it was huge. And I knew that I wanted to be with her forever. Was there something that stuck out about your culture that most of us Americans or somebody from a different culture wouldn't understand or wouldn't necessarily get, do you remember anything specific where you guys were like, yeah. Oh yeah, you guys kind of were just jiving and you can look at each other and be like, yeah, we, we, we know what this is. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. Um, I, like, I, I think for us, and I guess for most Latin cultures, um, family is forever, like, the biggest aspect in our lives. And it's always been for me and my family, like, we would die for each other, no matter what. And so me, uh, coming from that kind of culture, I, I figured she would be the same way. Obviously, she wasn't born in El Salvador. She was actually, like, second generation born here. Her parents were the ones that understood more how close family meant to me and my family. Um, Cause again, we were all born in, in this level, you know, so that, that culture and everything was still ingrained in us. And um, unfortunately it wasn't in her, you know? Mm. So you guys were able to connect on a certain level, but there was still a disconnection of some sort. She wasn't able to quite understand where you guys had all come from. Cause she was born here in the U S. Yeah. A hundred percent. I feel like that, that had a, uh, an impact. Interesting. Okay. So you're in your mid twenties, you're doing great. You're up and coming. You've got all these things happening. 
And then it's January of 2018. Talk to us about the night of the accident. What happened? Yes, uh, I was on my way to go down to uh, Statesboro to see uh, my my girlfriend at the time. And I had planned to, it was Martin Luther King weekend. So I had planned to go see my family in Savannah um, and spend time with them and kind of just hang out for a while. But I, I never got a chance to finish that trip. Uh, one hour away from Statesboro, uh, my parents, my mom started calling and I, cause she knows that I always call when I get to my destination. Like that's part of who we are. She always wants to make sure that, Hey, I get there safe. My sisters get there safe. So but I never got a chance to make that call. And my parents, I, from what they tell me, right? Because I don't remember anything from that night. Um, they had gone out, bought groceries and everything. But my mom had a sick feeling in her stomach, you know, that something was happening. Something was wrong because I wasn't answering her calls. And I'm not one to do that. So she started calling my sisters and they couldn't get a hold of me. And so they started freaking out. They called all my friends. Nobody had heard anything except my girlfriend. And she told them that I was an hour away last time I had spoken with her. So my mom and my dad decided to leave. Uh, let me interrupt you real quick. How many hours was that now since you had spoken with her? Um, since I had spoken with who? You spoke to your girlfriend when you were an hour away. But now mm -hmm. that now everyone's looking for you, how many hours has it been since the, she last heard from you? Uh, I think it had been just minutes. Oh, okay. So you should have been yeah. arriving at any point at this, at this point. No, no, no. But I like my mom, she just kind of wanted to hear like, have I, you know, have I hit the road? Cause I don't think I even called her like that. I was on my way yet. So she just kind of wanted to get an estimate of when I would be home. When but I your girlfriend called you and you spoke to you about an hour prior to you were supposed to be there. Correct. Mm -hmm. You were an hour from, from getting to her place. Correct. When she was on the phone with your parents at this point, um, was it literally like at that moment or, or have they been searching for you like for hours? Has she's been like, I don't, I can't get a hold of him. What, what's going on with that? My mom just, she called and she called at some point uh, before I had spoken to my girlfriend, but I, I, I didn't get the, the call. And then she called again. And at that point the accident had happened. But she continued calling because I had missed her calls twice, you know. So she kept calling, and I guess that's what kind of got her scared, that she kept calling, and I, I didn't even answer. I didn't say anything. Uh, and then my sisters, she told my sisters first to try calling me because uh, maybe, uh, you know, they knew more about me and nothing. They couldn't get the hold of me and anything. So that's when they started freaking out. Like something. What about your girlfriend though? You, you, you were talking to her and you said to her, Hey, I'm on my way. I'm going to be there in an hour. Yeah. So she wasn't, she wasn't scared. She told my sisters because my sisters were the one that got so, they, so she was just talking to them saying, Oh, he'll, he'll be here in about an hour. So yeah. You're saying she talked to them fairly close to the time that she had talked to you. So she mm -hmm. wasn't panicked yet. No. Okay. So, uh, okay, so go ahead. How did, how did they ultimately find out? And tell us what, what exactly happened. Yeah, so my parents, uh, they, they didn't, hadn't heard of me. None of my friends had heard of me. My sisters tried getting in touch. All they knew was that I was an hour away from my destination uh, a few minutes ago that I had spoken with my girlfriend. And my mom, she, she felt something was wrong. She never explained it, really. Um, and she told my dad to hit the road, like go drive on I-16. 
which is where the accident happened. And they, she didn't care that all the food, all the groceries they had bought could spoil. So they just hit the road. And my sister did the same. Um, I think she was in Savannah and they hit the road as well. And at all the time they started, they kept calling, they kept calling. Um, my dad was freaking out too. Uh, and my mom thought that maybe something bad had happened. She didn't think, you know, the severity of it, um, that something like that could happen, but she thought maybe I got stopped or I got pulled over or anything. I guess she was grasping for air at that point, trying to figure out why hasn't he answered? Why is he called? Why doesn't anybody know anything about him? So, um, then I was just getting extricated from the vehicle. So I don't remember the accident itself unfortunately, but fortunately, because I don't have that trauma to get behind the wheel. So what happened? What talk to, Tell us about the accident. What, what occurred? So a drunk driver uh, driving westbound on eastbound lanes, I believe, uh, was driving on I-16, and he was going 76 miles per hour. I believe that's what the police report said. And he hit me head on, um, and then he spun me a 180 degrees. And then the big rig behind me hit me head on as well. And then uh, the big rig crossed the median into the other lanes. Uh, and so they had to shut down both westbound and eastbound lanes for several hours uh, just because there was just no way to get me out. Um, head on collision at 70 and you're going about the same. You're going a yeah. high speed as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, correct. I'm going like 75, 76, I believe. So you got two cars coming 75 miles an hour at each other head on. Did you yeah. see that? Do you remember if you saw the car coming your way? What What do you remember? Yeah, I remember. Thankfully, I remember everything up until that point. And so I all I saw was the car in front of me veer drastically to the right. And then I saw the lights flash. And that's it. That's it. And um so the car in front of you got out of the way of this head-on driver. Yeah. And then this other guy just so this guy was that fucking that he was that gone, that drunk that he was just flying at people and didn't have any rec any any consideration of people's lives. Yeah. And it wasn't even that that late in the evening. I believe it was like six or something. I was gonna ask. It was a, so it was still light out. Yeah. Well, kind of, right? Because it was the winter, it was January, but it was still yeah, yeah. It was still, it wasn't like midnight. Yeah. So I have no idea, but he was severely intoxicated out of his mind. Uh, he had tried someone. Uh, I found this out a lot later. The, the UPS truck or a, a FedEx truck, I don't know, tried to per keep him from going into the exit onto the wrong highway. But for some reason, he still maneuvered out of the way and kept driving. Uh, so yeah. Uh, no idea how it happens. Whatever happened to him? Did he survive? Yeah, he, because ironically, he only had like a ruptured spleen, uh, very, very minimal damage. Uh, it's always the asshole out. that comes out unscathed. Yeah. So, um, and then I had just the two severe impacts. So the, the driver, the truck, the big rig driver, I think he, he's okay too. Nothing happened to him. Do you know what happened to the uh, drunk driver? Did he was, did he face? I assume he had to spend quite a bit of time in jail for this. I would I would have thought so. Um, that's what I expected, right? But I I, I knew he uh, he went to jail for about a year and a half while I was getting out of the hospital recovering, 
And then I had to go to this tr criminal trial. Um, and I asked the judge if I could uh, speak with him because I wanted to know, like, why? You know, that was the burning question for me this whole time. I was like, why? Why me? Why did this have to happen? Why did you get on the road? I just wanted a fucking answer. And uh, I just, I, I, thankfully, he agreed to sit down and meet with me. And so we sat down in a conference table. Um, my mom, she she brought pictures of me of who I was before the accident. And she was more angry than even I was. And because all, all I was doing was crying um, just because the last thing I wanted to do or see was somebody from my place back home, you know, be behind jails when I try to be the best person I could be and shine a better light on Salvadorians. So I, I, I couldn't talk. I was just. Was this gentleman, was he a Salvadorian? That's ironic. Yeah. Oh, he, he was. was. Okay. Wow. So yeah. th 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 uh, that's interesting. That had to be such a mixed emotion moment for you. You yeah. guys go in there, you and your mom to go meet with this guy from a year and a half ago that completely changed the, the course of your life. Yeah. And what, what was that moment like? Take us dig into that for us. Yeah. So we left, uh, I'll give you uh, just a brief backstory. So we left El Salvador. We came to the U S because of, uh, you know, violence back home and everything. And we wanted to, we, we wanted what everybody wants a better life. And so we came to the U S and that's what we did. And I, I had very seldom met with other Salvadorians, you know? Um, and then here I was coming in full circle and I, all the trauma and all the pain we wanted to leave back home, somehow it found me and a Salvadorian was the one that did this to me. That was like the hardest thing for me to swallow for some reason. Um, and my mom, she, she didn't let the moment slide in, in silence. She had so much she wanted to get out of her chest and, and talk to him. So, so you, um, got, you guys walk into a conference room and he's sitting there. Is he with an attorney, a mediator? Who's he with? Yeah. So the, I sent the letter to the judge asking him, Hey, can I meet with him? Can I record our interaction? Just cause I want to eventually do a documentary about this. And so he, he agreed and um, his lawyer or the attorney that he was assigned brought him into the, to the courtroom or not the court, the conference room. And it was, it was out of this world seeing him walk in he, about my height, you know, Latino and just in an orange jumpsuit. And he sat right in front of me and it was, how old was he? Emotions. He, I don't remember exactly. I know he was older than me. Uh, so he was thirties, forties. Like, what do you think? I think? He was like 30 or 31. Okay. So not much older, but no, not much older. A little bit older. So he looks similar to you in age and here he is. And he walks into the room and do you, do, do you get the chills? What, what is, what's, ha what's happening inside? Yeah. It's every emotion. I had anger boiling up. I had just distress. I had just sadness, just pure anxiety, sadness, sadness anger, frustration, all of a, that a world of emotions, all of that. And you know that your mother can barely keep it together. She's you're probably thinking more about her than you are even about yourself in that moment. Exactly. Because you know the distress that she's under. Yeah, because this she's she's facing, uh, obviously, the person that did this to her only son, you know, and seeing your son almost on his deathbed is not something any mother should go through. So um, I know she was feeling what I was feeling. Probably. What do you not. say? What's the first words? The first words I told him was, I, I don't know your story. I don't know who you are. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to see was somebody from my country behind bars. And then that's where I broke down 100%.
you just started you just started bawling. You couldn't get your words out. Yeah. And then my mom, she pulled out the pictures that she had brought. I had no idea. And she started throwing them on the table. She's like, how do you give this back to me? This is my son. And you don't you didn't look like you do now. You were completely broken. I was completely broken. I was scrawny. I had lost like almost 35 pounds being in the hospital. Um, I couldn't move my right arm at all. Uh, I, might, I was limping because I could barely walk. Um, so it, it was just an emotional distress, you know, being there. But I, I felt like I got to finish the sentence I was making with my life. Like I, this whole time, my life felt like an, un, like an interrupted sentence or statement that somehow this individual abruptly cut me off and being able to go back to talk to him and let him know that I was still standing and that I'm still, you know, fighting on just kind of made me put that exclamation mark at the end. And um, that was all I really wanted. I, I don't feel like I was going to get any type of um, con- reconciliation or any type of justice, you know, from any verdict. I really just wanted to do that. I just wanted to let him see that he had not broken me at all. Like maybe just physically, but aside from that, I was still pushing forward. Wow. What a powerful moment. What, what did he say? Was he remorseful? How, how did he handle himself? He, he didn't talk much to me. Uh, he couldn't look me in the eye. And uh, he only when my mom broke down and she started throwing the pictures did he actually look up and I could see what a tear, like a faint tear at the corner of his eye. And that's when he started speaking, but he didn't speak in English. He spoke to us in Spanish and um, which is why I'm grateful to his lawyer because he let it, you know, he didn't know what was what was being uh, traded, you know, verbally, but he let it happen. And he started speaking to my mom and telling her, I have two daughters um, and I would hate them just like you do if something like that happened to them because of somebody like me. And that's I think my mom got through to him. And that's something my mom does. She she can, you know, bring out the best in anybody, even someone like him. How long was this encounter for Caesar? I want to say it was like 15, 20 minutes. And you have this all on tape. Yeah. Will you ever release the tape? That's the plan. Mm-hmm. How do you guys, as the meeting is, is coming along, which started obviously hot and anxious and full of anxiety and full of anger and sadness and all this stuff. I mean, it's a short period of time, 15, 20 minutes, but, I assume that the conversation at least gave you guys, like you said, a little bit of closure. And maybe those 20 minutes later, you guys had a different aura about you than you did prior. How do yeah. you guys finish this off with this man? Um, I, he, I, he told me that he knew that I wanted to do either a documentary or do a book or just kind of help others going through traumatic events like myself. And so at the end he stood up and he's like, if you need my help, um, you know, you can count on me. And he gave me uh, a handshake, but in the air, obviously, cause his hands were tight. And um, I just kind of nodded, but I didn't say anything. Right. Like I, I had never met this guy. I saw him that day. That was all I really needed. Cause I wanted that closure. Right. I knew he came into my life just the way he was going to leave it. He was just, I wasn't going to see him again, um, but at least I had found finally closed that chapter, you know, that he abruptly opened. So 
Um, and me and my, my parents, uh, we, we weren't expecting anything like justice, you know, because nobody could give me my life back, anything that he, he had taken, right? So the verdict, uh, obviously, it didn't affect us, you know, when we heard it. And we left the steps of the courthouse together, like we had come in and like we had gone through everything together. This was the summer of 2019, thereabouts? Yes. Okay. So that was the closure moment for you when it came to uh, dealing with this person that obviously caused such pain and distress and, and a lot of heartache to your family and yourself for those 18 months. But those 18 months were, was a, a, had to be a very, very challenging time. Starting from that day in January where you're in the hospital, where you coded at least several times, I believe, meaning your heart stopped, correct? Correct, yeah. That day, so that like you, you, were on, you, were out, you were flirting with death, and they somehow revived you and saved you. What, did, what, did you, what are your, some of your earliest memories then of uh, the hospital? The earliest memory I have is when I woke up. Um, obviously, I was conscious in and out, right? But I don't have the memories. Um, but the one I do remember is uh, my friend Sean had brought me a whiteboard because he knew I couldn't write with my right arm. So, and I couldn't talk because my mouth was wired shut with metal. Um, so I had to write down stuff and I had a whiteboard. And the first thing I remember writing down was, how did I get here? I, I kind of, I, I knew something had happened, but the magnitude, the severity of it, nor how it happened, I had no idea. And I, I kind of wanted answers. Wow. You woke up in the hospital and had no idea on how you got there. That had to be the most horrific thing you could even uh, experience. You it don't was- have any recollection. I'm laying in a hospital, but I can't talk. I'm wired everything. My I'm destroyed. My body's... And I'm writing on a, I mean, that had to be this, probably such a scary feeling. It was, it was difficult. Um, but thankfully, like, I, I, I didn't spend that much time, re- like, really digging in into how, where I was, how did I get here? Because uh, I was zoning in now, you know, all the medications, everything that was, that was going through my body was kind of keeping those demons at bay, right? It wasn't until like my brain actually started working a little bit that I kind of started pondering and started thinking about, hey, why can't I move my right arm? Hey, why is my left leg, you know, still in uh, in bandages, you know? So that's when I started, once I could think a little bit more was when everything started weighing on me. So take us through some of the transition from the weeks and the months. What are the things that you're doing to get your life back together? Um. At first, it was nothing but therapy. Um, it took a while to come to the realization that nobody could give me my life back. You know, you can't turn back time. Uh, accepting everything was the hardest part. And thankfully, talking with my family and everything um, kind of helped me get to that conclusion. But in the meantime, I knew that I had to push myself. I had to get up every morning um, once I left the hospital, that I had to get up every morning, do my therapy, even if... I didn't see any change, even if I didn't see any improvement, you know, for the next two days, three days, whatever, I had to trust the process again, which was something I was used to a lot before, like I was a fitness fanatic, I was in the best shape of my life, which helped, you know, protect all my internal organs and help me survive. So I knew I had done it once, 
I could do it again. I just kind of had to retrust the process, retrain my brain and just keep pushing myself. Backing it up a little bit. T- tell us again, what were all the injuries? What were the major things that the ailments that you were experienced? So obviously I suffered a brain injury, a severe brain injury, because all the impact was on my frontal lobe. Because uh, when the first impact, the drunk driver hit me, the airbags deployed. But once the big rig hit me, I had nothing to protect me. So that just, you know, the big rig just coming straight to my face. Um, and so I had a severe brain injury. I had a brachial plexus injury, which paralyzed my right arm all the way up to my wrist. And uh, I had everything in my face was broken. My femur, my left femur was protruding out of my leg. Um, my PCL and ACL were torn. Uh, and I had, because everything was broken in my face, obviously I had to get intubated because I couldn't breathe. So I had a trach tube and then I had to a feeding tube because again, everything was wired shut in my face. Mm. The, the facial uh, injuries were probably the hardest and the worst just because I couldn't eat, I couldn't speak. I couldn't talk. I couldn't laugh. I couldn't smile. Um, so it was, it was very difficult just because everything in my face was it, just, you, it would take so many surgeries just to get everything back in place. And even then who knows if I'd have um, ailments, ailments further, further on down the road. So it was, it was hard to come to accept all the injuries I had. How long were you in the hospital for? I left, I think it was one or two days after, before my birthday. Um, so I was in the hospital for three months and then, and, and some maybe. Um, and that was just as I was inpatient where, you know, they had to have me in the hospital room all the time. But once I got discharged, I spent the next two, three years, just nothing but surgeries, therapy, um, and every type of therapy you can imagine. So. So you're in the hospital for 90 days. And I know you share some, there's some pretty gruesome pictures in the book of you laying in the beds and you can see your face and you're, you've got fixtures around your neck and things holding you together. I mean, it's pretty, you get a real good idea of what you were going through by just looking at a a picture. It shows you how devastating the the accident was. Um, Do you remember your parents being and visiting you, your sisters, but particularly your mom, you talk about your mom, of course, you guys are close when she was visiting you in the hospital and you felt like lifeless, almost you couldn't move. Those had to be some of the toughest times for you. Just seeing the sheer, sheer sadness and terror in their faces. Yeah. Um, my, my parents never left my side. Uh, my mom, she dropped everything and sat by my side, by my bedside and didn't leave one day. Um, she held my right hand. Uh, no, she held my left hand because on my right arm and everything was where all the tubes and everything were going through, uh, all the medications. So she was scared. She would pull something. So she just sat down and held my left arm, my left hand, um, day and night, day and night. And just always telling me we're going to get through this. You know, we love you. Please stick around just a little bit longer. We don't know what we do without you. And Mm. now it took a while, but, now that I, c- I can now see the pictures, you know, that my sisters took of her holding my hand, her bawling her eyes out, you know, over my body. And I can just tell just how much love she has for me, not just for me, right, but for her children. And that's why in my book at the end, I just 
that's my goal, right? To be half the man my dad is and to be able to love half as much as my mother does. Mm, that's sometimes you're left speechless. This is one of those moments for me. When you said that your mom would, would sit there and, and, and actually say, don't leave us. They weren't sure if you were going to make it to the next day. Yeah. They, uh, due to all the injuries. And then, um, obviously my sisters, they knew I had a brain injury. So they kept telling my parents, Hey, don't be surprised if he's not the same guy, if he's not the same person, you know, once he comes to, once he wakes up, he might have needs, you know, he might have, uh, remnants of the, of the accident, you know, that are still there. So just don't be afraid. But my mom refused to believe that she, she, every time she held my hand, every time she spoke to me in my ear, even when I was unconscious, she would tell me, you're going to come back just like the way you are. Mm. Wow. So you have 90 days in the hospital. You have your parents by your side, your mom with you the whole way, making sure that she's going to do everything she can to see that you come out of this thing. Um, and you do. And you finally go home. Do you, well, do you remember the first day at home? Yeah. Um, well, we went back to my apartment complex, which uh, I hadn't been to in forever. And it was so surreal being back in a place because my sisters, they, they knew where I lived, uh, where I where my apartment was, but they kept everything pristine like I normally would. And just being back in that place, I, it was surreal because this th these four walls, right, um, had seen me going through the biggest moments in my life. And now they were seeing a shell of a human being, you know, at least that's what I felt. Right. So it was like such a contrast and it, it made me feel depressed, you know, that I, I left this apartment one way. I'm coming back a completely different person. Um, and that, that hurt. Yes. And on top of that, you're, while you're maybe able to walk now and move some of your joints and your hands, you're still clearly nowhere near, like you said, you had years of therapy in front of you, but even more challenging, more, more devastating is that brain injury, as you mentioned, because that muscle is, oof, it's the strongest muscle in the body, but it's also, it's also so susceptible to damage, right? Yeah. So what were the things and challenges that you were experiencing mentally and emotionally because of that injury? For me, just. I, the dam that kind of held my emotions at bay, you know, cause I, before the accident, whenever I was never an emotional person, I always controlled my emotions. And if I felt angry or I felt sad, I would either sit down, write some music, or I would go to the gym and work out, you know, like that's how I, I, I got out all my emotions and it worked every time. But now after the accident, I couldn't do anything. My right arm was paralyzed. Couldn't sit down, write music, couldn't, you know, express myself. Uh, I couldn't go to the gym and work out because I could barely walk. So it kind of made me feel hopeless. And the emotions just were running rampant in my brain. Like I couldn't, I, I think I spent the first whole year just, I cried nonstop every day and every night. Um, there was just no way for me to control it. And you cried every single night for a full year. Every single night. Every night because what, what was causing, was it the physical part or was it just the, the frustration? I mean, it was everything. 
But what was the major reason for that? Was it the, was it the frustration from you just knew that your brain had changed and you were just fighting through every day to kind of make sense of things or what was yeah, it? It was, it was the frustration of what my life was now, you know, like what my life had become. And then if I went to sleep, I would wake up sometimes uh, with nightmares of the accident. My, not because I remembered it, but my brain would recreate it from the things I've heard, but I'd be looking at it and seeing the accident, not only going through it, but also experiencing it from a third perspective. And so that always woke me up with nightmares and I would be crying and uh, I would walk out, go to the living room where my mom was because she stayed with me since, and I would just ball my eyes out with her and fall asleep in her arms as oh as my a- gosh man this is gut-wrenching stuff man, man. Uh, so uh, the the um you mentioned the brain injuries being uh, really extremely frustrating but sticking on that were did you forget anything from your prior life Did you have trouble remembering people, places, things, events that had happened before the accident? Um, At first I did, but then everything started coming back. And I realized that I remembered little things, you know, like my usernames, my passwords, my my bank account and stuff, things that, you know, are necessary. But um, I I didn't know them uh, for the first few months. It wasn't until later that the memory started coming back. The only two... I only have like two weeks or three weeks of blank memory in my mind, which is the day of the accident up until, you know, when I woke up in the hospital. Um, And thankfully, like for the longest time, I wanted to be able to recall the memory of the accident, uh, what I went through. But now I'm at peace. I don't I don't care if I don't remember it because I can I can get behind the wheel without that flashback, without that trauma. um, So I can carry on with my life, which is the beauty of it. So you're spending time, you talked about these early days and weeks and months now kind of going into the, uh, after you've left the hospital and your family, of course, there, it sounds like your mom still was with by your side every single day. I mean, your, your mom's life was completely changed and turned upside down. Um, and now here you are, maybe it's five, six months after the accident. Throughout that course of time, though, going back to the lady that was in your life, the lady that you were going to visit the day of the accident, your girlfriend of one year, where was she during this entire process from hospital to then transitioning to your new, new life back at home? She, uh, she, she didn't live too far away. Like her parents didn't live too far away. Um, And, but she, again, she didn't have that family orientation, you know, that me and my family do. And she would always tell me she didn't want to go, go home and live with her parents. So I told her, why don't you move in with me um, into my apartment since so she had finished college and everything. And she was like, all right, cool. You'll be closer to all the schools I want to go to for my degree. And so I was like, all right, you know, that's not the intention, but I just, I was hoping that maybe she'd stick around and also help me, you know, with my therapy since um, she knew uh, that she wanted to be a therapist and that's what I expected. That's kind of what I wanted. But mostly what I really needed was for her to stay in my life, just because that was the only remnant that I had from my past life. Or at least that's what I what I envisioned, because obviously my brain injury 
just em- emphasize her, you know, and just focused on her. And so I didn't want that last part of my life to break away, you know, but unfortunately it did. Was she with you in the hospital quite a bit? Uh, she would come every now and again on weekends because she was still in school. Okay. And so my sister who was teaching in Savannah, she would drive up to her school, pick her up and come see me. And what happened when you, you, you kind of realized, hey, this girl's not really feeling this anymore or she's not in the same boat with me. She's not in the same mental and emotional place with me. Um, th- th- what's that day like? Does she, does she talk to you in person and say, I can't do this anymore? Or, or how did it unfold? No, it was, it was uh, kind of, it, it, it kind of unfolded throughout, right? But because I refused to see it in my brain injury, like I didn't see any of the red flags, right? That my family did see, but they never said anything. They never mentioned it because they knew my headspace was not in the right place. Mm. And they knew that any moment I would break. And so they they wanted her to stay also just because she was my my reason for living. You know, she was my motor. Like if my body was a machine, she was the motor that kept me going. And How so, long was she with you for until uh, you guys broke it off after the accident? Uh, she... I, I, after uh, my lease ended in like July of 2018, I asked her, Hey, I told her, Hey, I can get us a new apartment, you know, a bigger apartment with, I don't know with the money, but uh, I told her I would do that. And so she could bring in her stuff and with a bigger uh, closet and everything. But then my parents or my mom would still live with me because I needed all the help in the world. And so she was like, Okay, as long as she, you know, she gets to go when you're done with all your surgeries. And so I was like, okay. And then um, she stayed around. I helped her go into her college to get her degree um, and then apply for other other colleges to where she wanted to continue her education. And then uh, me and my sister sat down and spoke to my mom and told her we saw that she deserved better. She was sleeping in the living room of a one bedroom apartment, you know, obviously sacrificing everything she was for me. And so I just, as my brain started healing, I started realizing that she deserved better. She deserved more than what life had given her. And I I didn't think she should be sleeping on my couch for the rest of, you know, however long I needed her to be there. So I told her we need to get a, a house. And so my sister had already moved to be closer to me. And she agreed. She was like, let's buy a house. So in 2020, uh, we decided to buy a house and we moved everything on January of 2020. And we moved all of my girlfriend's stuff, too, because uh, I told her I'd be happy to start a new chapter with her in a new place. But I needed my mom to be to have a room and to have her own place. And so that's when she decided this is not what I signed up for. Um, mm. And so I just... So she was actually with you for a while still mm-hmm. for two years, for, essentially for, until 2020. Yeah. yeah. And then the accident. Mm-hmm. she actually left the day before I went to the criminal trial. So the criminal trial actually happened in 2020. Um, she left the day prior and which kind of just blew everything out of proportion because my parents knew that I needed to be in a good emotional state when I was going to go see the person that did this to me. Mm-hmm. But, I was a wreck just because not only was I dealing with that, but now I had another ghost I would have to deal with once I came home, which was life without her. You miss her? No, I I speak about it in the book. Uh, I miss the moments I was happy. 
you know, like I don't exactly miss the person. I miss the happiness that I had in those moments. So that's why I can like look at pictures, look at memories uh, and not feel any pain, not feel any resentment, you know, or anger. Like I, I knew that in that time I was happy. I missed that happiness. Not mm-hmm. the are you still, are you single or are you, have you been dating? No, I, I have a girlfriend and. Well, now we know why you don't miss her. You got somebody else. Now. You're good. You're good. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just that, but she, uh, my girlfriend now, Diana, she has come and healed a lot of wounds. And obviously she understands where I come from, where, uh, what, what all I've been through. And so she's been like the most supportive and just loving, you know, accepts me for who I am. It's amazing how people are put into our lives for different reasons. Sometimes it's crystal clear why they were brought in. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it doesn't become crystal clear until years or decades even later. And maybe sometimes it never does. Right. It's amazing that that we really are on a a path and we're all on a path. And it's it's all it's also incredible how um, so many relationships, so many people that come into our lives, actually, the vast majority of people that come into our lives aren't there forever. Right. It's just a very small number when you really think about it. Right. Even the best, your best of friends or your girlfriends or boyfriends or even husbands and wives, of course. I'm a divorced uh, man. So it's it's bizarre, but it's just when you really break it down and really think about it. Um, most people are not there forever, mm-hmm. but I do believe everyone does serve a purpose for some reason. Yeah. Let's before we finish it up, talk about this process for you. Uh, when you talked about healing the brain, was it just time, Caesar? Is, is that the only way that a brain can heal is time? Or are there things that you were doing that could help accelerate the healing? For me, just because everything else was physical, right? Like I knew my brain I needed, needed to heal. And that I had to allow, you know, the blood to be because my blood, my brain was still hemorrhaging for several months. And so my body just had to absorb the blood. I knew that aspect had to just be time and everything. But because I felt hopeless, I felt useless. Right. I couldn't go work out. I didn't I couldn't go to work for several years, you know, so it was it was either stay where I was or try to learn something new. And I knew the only the only muscle that I could work out was my brain so and as long as i stayed occupied stayed busy or stayed creating something i knew that i would keep the negative thoughts at bay you know because so stimulation positive stimulation is important a hundred percent yeah um because i i knew i couldn't break down for my mom ever again you know because i did think about suicide for my time at the hospital uh i which is something i had never had never crossed my mind right but then I realized that she was also broken, you know, when I looked into her eyes and saw that she was crying the same tears I was and that everything she believed in, everything that she had uh, thought about was broken inside her. And I know that break uh, went a little deeper just because, you know, she's believed and she's a very faithful woman um, or she's very much in her beliefs. And so knowing that that, belief had been broken kind of made me realize that I needed to be strong for her because we were all in this together and I stayed busy I made sure I kept learning new things because I knew I would eventually have to go back to work I knew I wanted to 
revitalize my portfolio, my abilities. And I wanted to create something to help others um, go through their darkest moments because I knew what I was going through and what I went through was a once in a lifetime um, event, right? I hope nobody goes through something as severe as I do, but the emotions I felt were once in a lifetime. And I wanted to put that down on paper. And if I could make it out of this dark moment and kind of be on the other side of this proverbial mountain, then I could help others go through their darkest moments. And I say in my book, my two trucks to the face could be your recent unemployment, your recent illness, but there's still a possibility uh, to live a fulfilling life and also to live a beautiful life despite the trauma and the scars that you have. Chase the light, the gruesome art of becoming unbreakable. It's available on Amazon and everywhere else you want to get your books. You mentioned that this is a, a book that you just got some news, exciting news before the podcast started about the book. Yes. What did you hear? Uh, that it is officially now a bestseller. Uh, and I, I couldn't be more excited because I really did pour my heart, my soul, and just every emotion into this book. Um, hoping- bestseller where? Who's the, uh, what What company told you that? Oh, on Amazon. On Amazon. Oh, okay. on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I, I couldn't be more happier and that it's, it'll definitely be doing what I, I expected to do with this book, helping others. And you talk about obviously this entire process for you. Um, when you say the gruesome art of becoming unbreakable, what are some of the things, what, what is the book's mission? I know you kind of just touched on it. You're talking about yourself, but who, what type of person is the ideal type person to read this book? Who needs this? Anybody who feels like they're stuck or anybody who feels like, why me? You know, because again, that was the question I kept asking myself for the longest time. Like, why me? Why does bad things happen to good people? You know, and I know that's that's a question we all ask at one point or another. And so this is kind of just to help others be able to accept where they are, but take the responsibility to get to where they want to be. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you asked that question to God? I did. You did. Mm-hmm. And what did you get back? Um, it, it's a question I probably still keep asking. Um, and I, I speak in my book that I did kind of reject my faith, you know, after everything that happened uh, for, for a while. I just, I decided why, why continue living, right? If they're, there is no purpose. And if this is how life is going to treat me from trying to be the best version of myself as possible, then why, why continue doing the right thing, you know? And so eventually I realized that it's not, it's not how or what happens to you, but it's how you respond to those moments. And I knew I had a chance right now to kind of show that to the world, um, especially after everything I went through. So I, I, Though I don't understand why good thing, bad things happen to good people, um, I think there's still a chance to live a fulfilling life as long as you have a breath in your body. Um, and as, as, as I say in my book, uh, that as long as you can breathe, you have the opportunity to chase your goals, your dreams, anything you want. Because um, unfortunately, they, they, I don't mention death because death is complete darkness, you know, like there is no going back from that. So as long as you can breathe, there's still a chance to live a beautiful life. And so that's what I hope everybody gets from that. 
It's beautiful. Have you gotten back into acting at all? I have. You yeah. have. Okay. And it's been the best feeling ever. Because uh, um, I didn't want to be in front of the camera for, you know, for forever, for like four, four years. I was going through all these surgeries and I just didn't feel like myself. But I've always been a passionate storyteller. Um, that's why it came naturally to me. And uh, aside from putting my book out, uh, putting my memoir out, I really wanted to bring, I love bringing stories to life, right? Especially something that has a meaning and it has a message. So uh, being in front of the camera was the best feeling ever. And I'm looking forward to many more projects. I'm excited. I'm excited. Hey, Clint Eastwood, if you're listening, your guy's back. <laughs> I'm He's back. ready to come again. He's ready to come back. Yeah. Get back at it. Pick up where you left off in 2017. Um, this is fascinating. And uh, I wish in you and your family um, just nothing but blessings, especially your, your parents, your mom. Oh, my gosh, man. What a great woman. I don't need to meet her. I, I already have met her through your words. So uh, continued blessings to you guys. My last question for you is throughout this whole thing, even though you still might not know exactly why this happened and you talk to God and you've questioned your faith and all these things in the recent past, maybe it's been in the past few months or the past year, has there been more of like an aha type moment for you? Like uh, one that's kind of an epiphany or one that has stood out where it's, it's perspective is starting to come into place and maybe you can see why this happened or maybe you're impacting somebody else that struggled. Was Has there been a moment for you yet or, or have you yet to find it? No, I, I think along the way, like those moments have happened and it wasn't until my brain injury healed that I could actually fully see the big picture. Um, I talk in my book, obviously after rejecting uh, my faith, um, I, I realized that I never was alone, you know, uh, when I thought no, no answer would come, you know, uh, God was always with me and every step of the way, he never let me fall. Um, despite moments where I thought we literally, I was in my darkest moments, I realized that he was always there and for some reason I, I made it out, you know, I survived when no one thought possible and maybe just maybe that's where he was. Beautiful, man. Hey, continued success, continued uh, recovery to you. All the best with this book. We'll link the book in the show notes and uh, I really appreciate connecting with you today. Nah, Nate, the pleasure was on mine and thank you so much. <laughs>